I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thanks, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers and, of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees. Life can change in an instant. In fact, it can be extremely shocking. It's what you do next that matters. Today's guest, Jonathan Bogner, makes sure he stays in motion. Jonathan, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. You want to talk about mortality? Yeah. Because I feel like I've died at least seven times. And the reason I believe I have died is because I have a defibrillator, which I used to have a defibrillator implanted in my chest. So looking at your eyes, it seems like you're not familiar with it. So, you know, when you go to an airport or school, they have portable defibrillators. So, you know, charge, stand back, charge, stand back. I had that implanted in my chest and it went off seven times. The last time it went off, it was back to back. So my mortality was, you know, did I die? I felt there was a great choir in the background. No, I'm joking. Yeah. There's no choir. It's lights out. I mean, you know, for me, I think I died, but I don't know for sure. I've had the defibrillator and it went off seven times. And then I uh, ultimately got the heart. You said you're not sure if you died. What did the doctor say? The doctor said, you passed out. And I said, I I passed out. I couldn't breathe for, you know, maybe a few seconds. It affected my brain, but it was momentarily. It was not like I died for a couple minutes. It was just a few seconds. That's why I had a defibrillator implanted in my chest in case I died it shocked me back to life. So a portable defibrillator usually has about 100 joules of electricity pulsating directly to your heart. So imagine that you were kicked by a horse right in your chest. You know, it's interesting. So when I saw my cardiologist, he said, yeah, wow, I feel I really empathize with you. I said, you know, 
Next time, I'm going to bring a taser. And then he could actually really feel what I'm feeling. He said, no, no, no I, 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 don't, I don't need to feel it that directly. But yeah, so it's pretty shocking when you defibrillator goes off. Shocking, huh? Shocking. Literally. Literally shocking. I didn't get the pun, but you're right. It's shocking. Yeah. So when I got 2007, I had a heart failure two strokes, and then I had aphasia, which means the inability to speak. And then the paramedics came and you know I went to the hospital and they thought I should get a new heart at that moment. And at that moment, I was 45 years old. I had two kids, you know, a wife, and life was going really well. I just sold a movie at Sundance. And I just couldn't believe this happened to me. And I ultimately, you know, because I had aphasia, it was very challenging. Well, I had to go to speech therapy for a year in order to like regain my ability to actually communicate. And I lost my business and I had to kind of like figure out a way to reinvent myself. Hold on. I want to pause there for a minute because I feel like you're saying this like... This is crazy. You're like at the top of your game. You yeah. just sold a movie. Yeah. Which is like something that everyone dreams of doing. Yeah. And you're completely stopped in your tracks. I mean, paint that picture more. Yeah. I've never really kind of psychoanalyzed myself what happened. It was just when I woke up in the hospital, when I was in the ICU and all this drama was happening around me. And I went to the ICU. I was left alone in a room and I was looking out at LA because I was at Cedar sinai and I've got great views of LA. And because I could think, but I couldn't verbalize it, the synapses in my brain were not connected. So it's almost like a person that you're talking to he understands what you're saying, but he can't connect. The language skills are not available. And I couldn't write and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even scream. You know, there's, there was like a pregnant pause and I was stopped in my tracks. Yeah. I produced a movie. We sold the movie to a you know, major film company. Life was great. I was starting another movie, Soccer Mom. And it was back to back. And I thought, I love being a producer. I love the drama. I love everything about the chaos that you have to deal with. And I thought my skill sets were good because I could manage the chaos. And I used my skills as a producer in my life and my recuperation from the heart transplant. And I think those skills relate to everyone all your listeners, because whether you're a CEO, whether you're a business executive, if you've got a life, you've got your family, you've got your work, you know, you're just managing so much stuff in your life. And I, after I had the stroke, after I had heart failure, after I couldn't speak, I had to relearn English and Today, after I've had the heart transplant 16 years later, I've slowed down 
in the sense that I want to think before I act. And I've learned that the skill set of being like triaging everything in your life, then I think that relates to your audience. But going back, how did I manage losing my business, laying off all the people that were working for me? And when they saw me, I mean, everyone was crying. It's like, oh my God. And it was so unexpected. You know, I mean, it was just because I got a virus that was almost like walking pneumonia. And it's a virus called myocarditis, which I've never heard of. And that attacked my heart. And then again, you know, that it started a whole different career because I was a movie producer. And then I needed my family in that regard in order to reinvent myself from being a film producer to become a reality producer. How many people were on your team? There was about 30 people that I working with me in my office, making all the way from pre-production to post-production. And we're like, you know, we delivered a finished movie. So, you know, there was a staff. So I had to, first of all, I had to relearn English. And originally, friends of mine were saying, when you relearn English, you don't have any intonation. So it's like a person, like they thought I was from Holland or Denmark because their way of talking was so monotone. And so there was no intonation. So I had to learn that skill again. So as my voice goes up and down, it was monotone for many, many years. So I had to relearn everything from the alphabet, which I still have problems with, to math, to conversation. And then through, you know, my family, my son was a DJ and we filmed him when he was a DJ. And I thought that there could be a show. And this was like 16 years ago. And we got <laughs> William Morris at that time, now Dever, an agent, the head of the agency, you know, liked the sizzle reel and worked with us again because I really couldn't speak. I got my son a manager, and then we went and we pitched the show to networks, and E Television bought the show. And it's amazing when you have those meetings with networks and an agent and a manager and essentially, you know, my son, I don't really have to say a word. So you can gesticulate and use your hands and point and no one knew I couldn't speak. I think that's a real interesting lesson in Hollywood that almost like the less said, the more successful you can become. <laughs> that yeah. is such a good soundbite right there. It's really yeah. true. I was just on one of those meetings right before this. And sometimes you can just set up the meeting and put the two power players in the room. And just from having made that connection and having the rapport with both sides, the meeting can be beautiful. I know you're right, because when you get the both sides and everyone wants to speak, and if you can't speak, or you choose not to speak and you set the parties up, you know, 
they're going to convince themselves to buy the show. Look, you're setting up obstacles when you speak. It's better to let them convince themselves to buy the show. So that kind of set us up for 10 years of running or producing reality shows. And again, you know, my heart was always failing. So I knew I had a ticking time bomb and there's a fraction, they call it in, you know, as a cardiologist or a patient who has problems, it's called an ejection fraction. And it went down over the last 16 years from about 18% to like 9%. And when you're below 20%, you shouldn't do anything. When you're below 9% or 10%, you can't really do anything. You can't get out of bed. Your life is so tied to your heart and the function of your heart and the blood pumping through your body into your brain, no less. So it was very challenging. And I had pulmonary edema, rushed to the hospital, and the hospital said, you know, you're so bad, you know, that you're going to be there until you get a new heart. And I was there for 30 days. And as a man, it was unusual that I got a woman's heart. Yes, I would love to talk about that because why is that so important? Well, one, I does your body reject it or is there rejection issues? Yeah. Well, I mean, rejection, whenever you get a heart transplant, you have a lifetime supply of anti-rejection drugs, right? Right. It doesn't depend on whether you're a woman or a man, you know, you're going to get those anti-rejection drugs. The woman that I needed a heart very badly, and when I walk around a heart transplant floor, you know, they have markers that indicate who's next, but it's not a marker that says who's next. It ultimately was a marker of people who needed heart transplants, right? And mm-hmm. I was comparing myself every day walking around the floor. It's like, you know, when am I going to get the heart? And the nurse reassuring me, you know, you're not next in line. It's based on your body type, your blood type, and availability, meaning that you're in the hospital, you're you're kind of next in line. So that woman died, the donor, and I don't know the donor, even though I wrote a letter after a year to kind of thank the donor And the donor's heart, which I didn't know, was fraught with other complications that I inherited. So when you get a heart, you get all the complications of that donor's pre-existing condition. So my heart is pumping, you know, so much better, right? It's just, it's a life changer. And I thought the hard part of getting a heart was the operation and recuperating. Ultimately, you know, they're on these anti-rejection or immune suppressant drugs for a lifetime. And those drugs have lots of side effects. So, you know, I mean, I'm blessed that I got a heart, but at the same time, you know, every heart has their own story and you don't know what that story is 
because you're not able to contact the donor, in my case. Do you think about that on a soul level? Well, I've got kind of like a process that I use and my process is, which I think is very beneficial to anyone that, you know, I choose to meditate, which just sounds hokey, but I just do it in the morning for two minutes and in the afternoon for a little bit, just to reflect on one, I've got a new heart. So that every day you've got a new heart is a valuable day. You know, it's a day that you probably wouldn't have. So I always think about the donor. And when I got the heart originally, it was just, I thought about the donor all the time. And then, you know, as life goes on, other things happen. And then you remember your donor every day. But at the same time, you've got other things that you have to deal with. So yeah, at the beginning, it was all encompassing. Interesting. And how did you integrate this into your family, this new lifestyle? You know, both my kids are adults, so they don't live with me. You know, you've got young kids, I've got older adult kids. So it was really having my wife commit that, you know, she'd be my kind of like full-time caregiver. So that was a whole different transition from being employed, having a job, not being employed, because of disability and moving through this kind of cycle that we were not prepared for, but at the same time, you know, we knew something was going to happen. So it gave us some warning. So it was not like a sudden chop of that, you know, like you chop something, you lost part of your body, but we knew it was happening. But it's hard for anyone who have, has an organ. I mean, being a caretaker for someone is extremely challenging and you have to have a lot of patience. And she went from being essentially a Beverly Hills housewife, I mean, with a job, but living that lifestyle to quite an abrupt change. I'm imagining you went to red carpet events. No, no. She was a lawyer. So she was actually my lawyer. (laughs) Really? Yeah, she was not saying she was a housewife. Okay. She she was a lawyer, but she managed the house. Yeah. Well, you also had COVID, you know, in the last three years, pretty much, right? So that altered everything. So it was just very acceptable to work at home. You know, if there was a perfect storm, having COVID, not going out, not giving up a lot of these memberships that, you know, movies and going, you know, screenings, COVID had hit. And so no one was doing anything. So actually, it was kind of a blessing in a weird way. It's been challenging for the caregiver. When you have any emergency, you know, you have a team. And in the top of my team would be my wife and my close friends and my sons. But they're not going to go into the arena. They're just saying goodbye and saying hello but you're the person that goes through the surgery. And yeah, when you come home, it's very challenging. You know, my situation, I'm not a heavy guy. I'm around like, you know, 120. So I went down to 100 pounds. So I lost like, you know, like a fourth of my body weight. So that's hard. You know, I don't want to make this all about my recovery, but the recovery process, you have to like try to walk 
You know, when you're in a bed for a month, you know, your muscles atrophy and, you know, you can't do certain simple things. So, yeah, I had to physically get better. That happens, honestly, so quickly. I literally was talking to a guy at the gym about this. Like, if you don't work out for a couple months, you're not going to have the same strength. I mean, just a couple months, you can go tremendously down. Yeah. Yeah. So I work out every single day for about an hour. Wow. I I walk every day for about 10,000 steps, a minimum. I think having a dog really helps. So that helps. But I feel like it's a life lesson for anyone, any listener that you have has to, even though you get depressed and you don't want to get out of bed and you have to get out of bed or your routine, one, you have to do certain things in your life every single day. And I feel exercising is something that people don't like to do. They're that percentage that like it. But you have to make that part of your lifestyle and your health. As we age, we need to develop a way to be fit. And being overweight or obese is not a good lifestyle. And even though you're depressed and even though you have like suicidal thoughts or you feel everyone is against you, Whatever you think doesn't prevent you from one, doing simple exercise and walking, even though you're living in Houston and the heat is oppressive, right? You can walk in the morning, you can walk late at night, or you can walk in a gym. There's so many ways you can do things, but people have so many excuses of why they don't do things. So I feel I do a little bit of meditation, which always sounds like a hokey thing. Just listen to your body. Just be informed because your doctor only knows what you tell him or her. And then the blood, you know, they do a blood test and blood shows a lot of things, but you can fake it. You could you know, don't drink for two days or, you know, don't enjoy. I mean, there's ways that you can manipulate a blood test. Hopefully you don't, but there's no reason that you can't think about your day. Think about the good things in your life rather than dwelling on the negativity, the, you know, oh, I have to do something with my kids and, you, oh, I have to do something with my wife or my husband. Oh, there's obligations. That's one part of your life. Clearly, you, you're doing your podcasting. You've got a husband that you have to take care of and he has to take care of you. Then you've got kids. Then you've got your father. You've got your family. Okay. And then you as a person are a very different person than you as a mother or as a wife. There's so many hats that people have to wear. And then you have to figure out how to, as I keep saying, triage, making, if you can only do one thing, what's the one thing you need to do today? And you have a list. I mean, everyone has you know, a mental list or a physical list that they write things or on your computer. But at the same time, what is the thing that I need to do today? This is the 
This is the one thing I need to do with my family, you know, and then simplify it. And then if you get more time or you get that checked off, then you can go down that list. I mean, it seems so obvious. All the things that our grandparents said to us or other people know, but they don't follow about managing your time. And I listened to one of your speakers or your podcasts, you know, organizationally managing your life. You know, all these things, all these things, I feel from birth, right? You have a rhythm. So where I was producing, you know, shows about kids and kids in the womb, you come out having rhythm. We lose that rhythm and that rhythm is part of your life, but you listen to your mother's heartbeat. So you have some rhythm. So, you know, there's certain things that we're innately born with and we lose them along the way. I think if you really want to kind of go back and think about your life, you have to manage your thoughts, your internal thoughts, whether you block them out, everyone has internal thoughts, right? Manage those internal thoughts, do a little bit of meditation, exercise, walk, and control your anxiety. What are you worried about? I mean, if it's not life-threatening, you can defer it, postpone it, manage it, and then listen to your body. Listen to what your body is telling you. Oh, I have this ache. Should I deal with it or should I not deal with it? You know, as you get older, you want to deal with it. When you're younger, you don't think it's a big deal. But you know, those aches and pains, if they're not muscular skeleton, they could be something that you don't want to defer. And then just don't abuse your own body. You know, we're not immortal. And if you try to abuse your body, you will pay the price. So just be in touch. So, I mean, that's the story from a person who, as we go back in our conversation, like a cat, I mean, I feel like I died and came back. I died and came back because I had a defibrillator and you die. Technically, there's a moment that, you know, you're dead, but your heart with all those amount of electricity, shocking, literally shocking your heart, brings you back to life. So, I've done it. Everyone can do this. These are simple, simple tasks that we forget. Have you ever abused your body? Honestly, no. I mean, you know, I was all that. I was that person, you know, throughout my entire life where I always thought about the consequences before I indulged. Really? Yeah. You know, and yes, I've been drunk, but I've never passed out. I've never been paralytically drunk. I tried all kinds of drugs, but for me, it was almost like a fear factor. Do I really want to push a try that type of drug? Oh, you know, everything I knew about this drug, it's addictive. I don't want to do it. So I don't know. That's me. Do you feel like you've gotten a new rhythm with a new heart? I do. Everyone asks me, oh, do you feel more sensitive? Maybe. Do I feel more sensitive? I mean, I feel that that's like, because it's a woman's heart, do I feel more sensitive? I feel that's kind of like, you know, assuming. But yeah, when you go through life-threatening trauma, you have a new perspective. 
having this conversation with you is a whole new perspective for me. You know, I mean, how so? Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. No, I'm saying you have to. And it sounds so hokey, you know, cherish those moments. But, you know, you're going through your life and you're having those business meetings and you're trying to do promote someone or spend money that's really not your money. It's the company's money, you know, and you're going and going and going. There has to be a pause. And I understand burnout. You know, you don't want to work 12 hours a day, 20 hours a day, because ultimately you are reliant on certain drugs. You are reliant on too much coffee, too much caffeine. You really want to manage one, your expectations of who you are and what you want to be in length. And also, you know, have some joy in your life. You know, just walking around, just thinking about life and all the tasks that life holds for you. Just try to enjoy it a little bit. Who is Jonathan Bogner? What do you enjoy? You know, I actually enjoy walking around the park. And there was an opening for a park commissioner. And I went through the interview process. And I don't know if I'm going to get the job or not, or it's not a job, it's a commission, so you don't get paid. But I felt like all the people that were on the commission, I hesitate to think how much they enjoy a park. I don't believe most of these people on the quote the commission. It's almost like, you know, they don't go to the park, but they're on the commission. I actually, my qualification, you know, and I, I said that to the mayor, my qualification is I go to the park every day. I walk around the park every day. I enjoy the park. So that's my qualification. I'm not a builder. I'm not a politician. I'm a regular guy who enjoys the park. That was on the top of my head. That's what I... That, I like um, it. I like it. What do you want your kids to say about you? You know, that's a loaded question for me. I would like my kids ultimately to say about me, he was in his own way, because everyone has their own way. He was a good man. He tried, whether I agreed with him or not, he tried. And he put my well-being above his well-being in the sense that, you know, he sacrificed, you know, because I feel having kids today, it's not a given that they're going to love their parents. It's not a given that they're going to ever come home again. So, you know, what you want to do, as your father always says, you know, you want to try to be the best person that you can be, and hopefully that will rub off. And, you know, that's what I'd like to be remembered for. That's really beautiful. I've been thinking about a conversation that I had just a couple of days ago, but I think that there's people in our lives, it, it might only be one, that teaches us about love. And when you think about the word love, do you feel like you've been able to give it? Absolutely. I feel I give love to a lot of people in my life. And I also, clearly this conversation has been all about 
you know, my heart transplant and my illness. And I'm pleased to say I've come out of that. And so I feel when you go to a doctor's office or you go and they have all these like requests, how did you think the service was? You know, and I always compliment the people that have been good to me. And I actually take the time out and write a letter or if there's a form. I consistently do that now. I was not good about that in the beginning, but yeah, I feel like I have given a lot of love. I don't know if that love has always been received in, with good intentions, but yeah, I feel I'm good at giving love. Who gave it to you? Who taught you how to love? God, you know, I grew up in a matriarch. So I had a mother, an aunt, and a grandmother. And, you know, we were always in like one or two blocks radius. So I felt I grew up in a very loving world. And that's not easy to say for most people because a lot of people have not grown up in a loving world. And I, I had a father who left very young and he actually left the country. So it's not like we can see him or visit him. He just left the country. And ultimately, he did us a favor. But I wouldn't analogize it. He went to prison, but literally he went away. And so, you know, you have to find love, whether it's from a relative or a support system. But there are a lot of people that want to give love to other people. And it's hard for people to accept it. In order to give love, you also have to be able to accept love. That's a strong statement and true. Yeah. You can't just receive love without being able to give love. And I'm thinking about the foster kids. I'm thinking about the world in general. I mean, you know, I think like all the forest fires and all the tragedy in Hawaii, you know, there are really good people that have been like helpful to strangers. My wife always criticizes me of being kind to strangers. That's neat. I want to be kind to strangers until they prove otherwise. (laughs) So, uh, you know, but yeah, you should be kind to strangers and very surprised when able to give kindness to a stranger, the rewards for you personally, it engenders. But were you able to be that way when you worked in Hollywood? Because Hollywood can be very cutthroat. Less so. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Did you ever have your heart ripped out there? Yeah, I've had my heart ripped out or being, you know, disillusioned, being the politics of the industry, whether it's on reality shows or feature films, and you have to deal with disappointment far more than you deal with the approval and the success. There's way more failures than there are successes. Yeah, that's true. Did you have any successes that stick out in your mind that you still kind of like to revel in? I felt I did a lot of family movies. And I enjoyed those movies. Like, you know, I made a movie called Retrievers. You know, I did a lot of movies that you would see on the Family Channel. And then I also did a lot of sports movies. I mean, 
every movie has their own unique experiences. And I feel like the reality business, which you've been a big part of, that I've been a big part of, you know, you do these shows and some of these shows, you know, we did a show called Addicts and Animals. I think it was on Animal Planet. And it's all about women and men that went to jail and they got released. They were on probation and they had to have an animal to work with. And so it was a therapy when they got released, they had to have someone that depended on them. And I think that was a very good experience. And the stories I've heard were so heartbreaking. And I was like crying on set, you know, with the people I'm interviewing. And it's like, you know, so it was, that was the most emotional story or series I've ever made. Do you remember the story that made you cry? For me, it was the growing up of the man that started the program and his entire body was tattooed from the face down. So his face was tattooed. So forget his arms and legs, just dealing with the face and the neck and everything. So he was a tough guy. And what he grew up with that really was very emotional when he told me and when he discovered that he had to be responsible and he got a dog. It sounds hokey. You have to be there in the moment. But you know, people don't really fully understand what luck and pleasure they have in life. You know, and I've been lucky and you feel like, oh, yeah. If not for that person, I would be more successful. If not for that, you know, you always blame people. But you just also look at yourself saying like, you know, how lucky am I that I'm living in Beverly Hills? There's 30,000 people that live in Beverly Hills. You know, when I walk around the neighborhood, yeah, we don't live in the, the $50 million homes. But I walk around with, a, you know, <laughs> to the park. I'm like, I'm talking to my wife. It's like, yeah, we're pretty lucky that we live here. And the same thing with most people. Just look around at your surroundings and just like, huh, it could be worse. So I, my dad loves to say it could be worse. No, I mean, like, I feel from my story that I want to tell, which I'm writing, and it could be worse. So everything could be worse. That's one of my dad's favorite lines. It's so true. My grandfather even said that. I love what you said about recognizing luck and pleasure. That's very interesting. I feel that way about a lot of the different shows that I've gotten to work on, reflecting back now, especially. Look at you. I mean, you've got a husband, you got three kids. um, Four. Four, you're doing well. We don't, I forgot the fourth one. And you're doing your show and you're being hugely successful and you got a huge audience. I mean, how lucky are you? That's yeah. sweet. No, how lucky are you? But at the same time, you know, I'm not dealing with the chaos in your life. And the only suggestion I have, you know, there, whether it's triage it, whether it's the Eisenhower quadrums, whatever you want to do, you know. Focus on the most important thing right now is you and me talking. 
I'm not thinking about anything. I noticed one of your guests was like really super focused on you and her situation and her story. Nothing else matters. And then you just go on do your other things. It's so beautiful. It's funny. Yesterday, I talked to a network and then my kid's school. (laughs) I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy at the network was like, your kid's school is important. Take that call. You know? Yeah. But it is a juggle. It is chaos. And there are many days where my kids are like, don't go do a reaction with your dad. And I'm like, that's why you have to have stuff in the can. That's why you have to be weeks ahead of what you're going to release. Because, yeah, there's vacations. There's kids getting sick. There's schools that you need to have a conference with. There's always chaos in the background. So you have to think like a producer. I think everything, if you think about it, is limited resources, limited time, and what can I do today for this shoot? You know, everything, we're all producers. In one way or another, we are all producers. We're producing our own lives, and we're allocating the time that we spend on priorities. Are those your producer glasses? These are my regular glasses that I wear for a year, and then they get ruined, and then I have to buy a new pair. You know, it's funny, when I worked at Springer, I had outfits that I had good shows in, and then I had outfits that I had not as good of shows in, and I would never wear the not as good outfits on a show day again. Like, if I didn't have a good show in one of those outfits, they went to one side of the closet. That's so funny. I mean, everyone's a little superstitious, so it's like, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, being a baseball player or a quarterback or, you know, everyone's like, you know, being superstitious is like you can't convince the person that it's not the outfit. It's the moment in time. It's the personalities. You know, it's not the outfit. But the person that wears the outfit, I can't wear this outfit again. You know, if that's what makes you run, don't change the outfit. You know, you've got to have confidence. And I think the whole thing that we ultimately I wanted to go to confidence, but it's giving people the right that they can be confident. You know, it's giving people who are managing businesses, who are triaging in a hospital or in the military or a mother, you know, you have to be confident in your own right. And I think that has been taken away, you know, from children who are not confident. And I don't understand why kids grow up in the same house with the same loving parents and one is confident and one is not confident. And how do you create that confidence in people? Because whether you believe it or not, and confidence will help you navigate your entire life because you think you can do it. If you doubt that you can't do it, then it's like you have anxiety. It's like, oh, can I do this or not? It's like, I've never even thought, you know, again, one of your guests like said, you know, you have to be a little scared because that keeps you really alert. This was my first podcast. We succeeded and we were almost going to give up. But you know, a little apprehension goes a long way, but you have to be confident that you will succeed. And if you don't succeed, what happens? Okay, 
<laughs> I'm going to try it again, you know? Heck yes. I love that. I feel like that kind of ties into one of the questions that you gave me about what does a medical patient motivator mean? Yeah. So I don't know if this is a motivation. I looked at all these speakers or coaches and I was like, what? Who am I? You know, as I move forward, what do I want to do? And what I want to do is do podcasts. I'd like to do articles that I work with writers to get published. I'd like to be dealing with health, but health relates to everything, right? From business to financial to family life, your personal life. But at the same time, I'm a patient and patients could mean you're like almost like a work in progress. So I'm a health patient, which I have been and I am. And I'd like to motivate people who are depressed. You know, it's like people who go in to get surgery or an organ. Am I going to get out of this? You know, and the odds are you will. Okay. But there's lots of people that, you know, there's a hundred thousand people looking for a heart and 10% get it. So well, whatever really? happens. Yeah, what happens to the other 90,000? You know, I mean, the statistics are not in your favor, but you have to believe that. So health motivator is, you know, you have to be positive. And I've been depressed. I've been positive. And I'm telling you, it's better to be positive than negative. So just to answer your question, what is a health patient motivator? I'd like to talk to people and say, tell me your problem, okay? And then I'm going to tell you all the problems that I've had, okay? And I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm talking to you. That's kind of like amazing. Have you talked to other people that have gone through transplants? You know, it's interesting. Yes and no, okay? So the yes was when I met heart transplant patients through the heart clinic at Cedars. They have a get together. Yeah. So I've met other patients, but it's interesting when I was going through getting the heart and I asked the nurse, because everyone walks around the floor, there's like seven of us. Can you get all the people that are looking for a new heart together and we can just chat, you know, or battle it out? No. Yeah. Yeah. Battle out the heart. So no one, no one wanted to meet. I was really? very surprised. Yeah, I was very surprised. But when they get the heart or the organ, you know, everyone is so appreciative of the doctors and what they went through. So everyone is at that point at the picnic, they're all happy. Interesting. You know? But, you know, depression and money and stress and people in your lives. So my view is one, you have to have some hope, right? I mean, if you don't have hope, you know, and I don't really help people that are so depressed that they have no hope because what's the choice? You're going to die. And who's going to care about if you're so depressed? Do people care? So I feel like being depressed, there has to be a bottom and then you have to rise up. Okay. Everyone has stress, mostly money stress. Okay. If you analyze people, it's all about money, money, money. It's the lack of money or 
I've never heard people like, oh, I've got too much money and I'm unhappy, but there's a lot of people. I've got too much money and I still have issues with other things, but it's not money. So I think everyone needs more money, but that can't be your guide through your life. And again, you know, I'm lucky, but I'm also unlucky. So, you know, kind of it's a flip of the coin. And you have to get the weird, I mean, toxic people. You know, if you've got people around you are so depressing or so negative, you can't be around those people. You have to get rid of those people in your life that are toxic to you. They can be great for other people, but they're so negative and they have a bad attitude about things. That's not a good situation to be in. And also you have to treat yourself well. You know, I always feel like if you do something, let's say you go to the gym, you know, you don't go to the gym and then then go to McDonald's, but you go to the gym and work out, give yourself some little treat because I feel like the whole reward system, there's a reason there's a reward system. Even on your, you know, I have an Apple watch, you know, the reward system, it's not monetary. It's not sending you a certificate in the mail. It's your watch saying, good job, right? People just like to know they did a good job. So compliments are easy, you know? It's easy to compliment people. You don't really have to be a negative person. Like, you know, you didn't really do a good job, but you can tell it and tell people they didn't do a good job in a kind way, And but it takes work. Everything in life takes work. How much work do you want to allocate to people in order to have friends? Yeah, Rena, you've got your whole podcast universe. Yes, you've got a lots of friends, right? But when it gets down to it, you know, friends take time. And in order to invest that time with a friend, you have to allow and you have to receive that I'm going to give you some time and I need you to give me some time. And I've had those experiences with people that wanted to be my friend or, you know, they reached out to me. And it's like, okay, I'd like to be your friend. There is a criteria to be my friend and there's a criteria to be your friend. Are you going to invest time? So time is the irreplaceable commodity of your life. You know, there is a finite amount of time. And if you don't like that person, why be friends with them? If you want to be a friend, then you want to allocate so much time. So meaning you can't cut up a million friends. You have to kind of pick and choose. And, and I categorize them, you know, first, second, third yeah. tiered. So, you know, if you want to be a first tier player, there's a responsibility. You can be a second or third tier player. It's not a big deal. Oh, man. Now I want to see what that criteria chart looks like. But that is a really good point, to be honest. I was just talking to somebody this morning that I was doing a coaching call with. And I was telling him, like, if you have people on your podcast, it's a really good idea to send them the links, to send the graphic, to tag them in the posts. If you don't send it to them, like, they're not going to share it on their own. And if you want to maximize those relationships, it's not just sending them the material, it's continuing the conversation afterwards and not relying on a VA to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. What are you saying about the relationship if it's not even you following up with them? Right. Everybody wants to feel like a tier one. Everybody wants to feel like an A player. Everybody wants your cell phone number. But if you're having these people in your life, like you said, who are the special ones that you're going to give that time to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's harder for you because you've got so many people pulling in you and you're looking for time for you. So it's that personal calling or like touching base rather than calendar invites. I mean, they're so ubiquitous with these calendar invites. I mean, for me, it's like I kind of most of the time, I, you know, accept and ignore. So the personal touch and it doesn't, you know, I feel like you probably have it too. Hi, bye, friends. Hey, I know. Good, good. Okay, bye. They're thinking about you, but they don't have to have. I mean, my wife cannot do that. She's not a high bye girl. So she just has to have a conversation and they don't know how to get off the phone. You're not that person. Okay. But I'm just saying there's lots of people that like, okay, end the call. Boom. I actually have a hard time with that because I'm not that kind of person. So when somebody asks me how I'm doing and they really don't want to know, <laughs> that took me a long time to really be able to understand that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, everyone has to evolve, you know, as a person, as a member of your family. And it's hard to evolve, but it's almost Darwinian in the sense that if you don't evolve and you don't change, you die out. You know, I mean, looking at like new humans, like there's certain body parts that we're not going to get as we evolve, you know, and then the websites that pointed out, you don't need this part. It's like, you know, I lost my gallbladder when I had the heart transplant. And it's like, I came in with my gallbladder. I want to leave without my gallbladder. I want to leave with my gallbladder. So why are you going to take it out? It's like, they have to explain to me why. And it's like, okay, so they're saying you don't really need it. As we evolve, you don't need it. So it's the appendix. You don't really need it. But, you know, I wanted it, but I was holding on to something that I really don't need. I don't know if that makes Mm, sense. Yes. Really, but. Yes, that does make sense. That's also very interesting because it goes right along with friendships, right? Like how many times have we held on to relationships that really have kind of served their purpose and we've moved on from them? I know. I mean, but those people in your past that your high school friends or grade school friends, I moved around so much. I don't really have those long relationships. So it's like, you know, a friend of mine, she's my age. And he's like, oh, I went to kindergarten with this person. And I went to, you know, second grade. It's like, I'm I'm like honored that we're only friends for 20 years. It's like most of your friends, you've been friends with like when you were born. So it's like, how did I break into your club? So, oh yeah, I need fresh blood. It's like, okay. That's cool. That's cool. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Let him bring some fresh blood into the conversation? I mean, I think we're in that kind of the same age group. And my question to him was more like philosophically, like what have we both done in our lives that we made an impact? 
You know, I mean, are there things that we've done in our lives that we've made an impact on someone else's life? I'd like to think I have, but I, I don't know if that's a good question. But, you know, I would be curious of like what he thinks about being like a motivator as a patient as a health motivator. I mean, is there something out there that people want to hear someone who motivates them to be confident about their life as they age? And as we age, and that relates to kind of everyone, but I'm postulating the question as I'm speaking. So, you know, I feel like what lessons do we want to take away from our experience with people that they want us to take away. I wanted people to take away from a conversation with me is, okay, he's smart, he's sarcastic, he's nice, he's a kind person, and, you know, three things are enough, you know? I mean, I don't know how to help people who are so without hope. I think you have to have hope with everything you do in life. You hope that your show will be successful, but you don't count on it being successful. You do the hard work. I love that. Well, thank you. I'm still thinking about the fact that you shared with me at one point you couldn't even scream. And now you're sitting here able to pontificate all of these things and ask my dad a question. That is remarkable. Yeah. You don't hear it. Friends of mine who knew me before I had the stroke hear it. But as a new person, you don't hear it. I'm using all those synapses in my brain to like reroute things when you ask me a question. It's not as spontaneous as you think. But yeah, you can't tell I present well. But the rest it's the shirt. <laughs> yeah, but the rest of me internally is like a bomb blew up. But yeah, yeah, it's being presenting well. Well, you definitely present well, Mr. Tin Man. Thank you so much for coming on the Better Call Daddy show. So wait, so you talked to Tony about Mr. Thomas Tin Man? Yeah. He always calls me Tin Man, but you know. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. What's funny is you introduced me to Jonathan Bogner. Well, you just never know where you're going to get a contact from. But Jonathan Bogner gives you a perspective of where he has a stroke, he has a heart transplant, and it's even a woman's heart. So did that make him more sensitive because he's now got a woman's heart? Or is it going through the experience of life and death when it's at your door? Sure does change your perspective of certain values in life. Or it makes you realize what the real values of life really is. And he poses the question at the end of the episode, is motivating other people or being a mentor to other people, isn't that just as important part of your life as fulfilling your own life? And you know what my answer is, of course. Being able to motivate other people. And this is one of the great lessons that some teachers even tell you, is that if they can get through to one person that needs to find direction in their life where a teacher has had an impact on them. And if it's just one student, 
out of the thousands that they try to or attempt to teach, that if they feel like if they even got through just one student out of all of the thousands, they feel like their life had meaning and success, that they were able to pass on to hopefully a future generation, just like what the Better Call Daddy show is about, is a generational motivation for the future and where our words of wisdom can be carried on by your daughter or your son and maybe your granddaughter or your grandson. And hopefully if we can live long enough where we can see great-grandchildren, where those words of wisdom, you feel like if they can be passed on from generation to generation, where you're even quoting your grandfather, is where our life did have purpose and meaning. And it's passing that words of wisdom to others does fulfill our own destiny of meaning. So I certainly agree with that. I found it fascinating that still, in a lot of these episodes that we do, we have such limited time on this earth. Everybody realizes that. And you want to be able to pick your friends or the people that are going to be close to you that are positive. That if you have toxic people in your life and people are just whining and complaining and blaming everyone else, isn't it a turnoff? And who wants to waste the time with people that whine and complain? So even if you have a problem, you've got to be able to suck it up and be able to move on a lot of it on your own. It's nice to have support and motivation, but if you keep that thing burning over and over and over again, you're not only wasting your life, but you're wasting the life of everybody around you as well. So we always have to keep looking forward, always have to be able to, if we have to reinvent ourselves. And here you can be very successful your whole career in something, but the timing has to be right. And when the timing isn't right, you have to know when to move on and be able to do something else. That comes out in this episode as well. And of course, my favorite part is that if you grow up in a loving situation, and every situation could be a little different, but to have that support and love is so vital for someone to really blossom. It's really the secret sauce or the ingredients to being successful is knowing that you're in a loving, kind world. And there's so many people in this world that are lacking with that type of environment. And that's why there's wars and struggles and killings, because they don't really know how wonderful life is really all about and haven't even had an opportunity, as we've talked before, about even having that generational love, having two parents, not one. It's something where if you come from a single family home, that's where sometimes a grandparent has taken the place of one of those members or an aunt or some type of support person. It can be a professor or a teacher or even a neighbor or an uncle, but not to have it makes it really a chore to be able to motivate yourself to see a better light in this world. It's so easy to be in the dark. So I think part of God's experiment of human beings is that we're going to go through all these trials and tribulations and have this history of figuring it all out. And that one day we'll have all our ducks in a line and understand what we're all meant to be. And it's one coordinated globe of people all living together in peace and tranquility 
and where everyone has opportunities to be kind to each other and to excel in life. But it certainly looks like we still got a long ways to go. But maybe we have to live through all of this turmoil to realize that this is not the way we want to live. I've definitely realized that. <laughs> anyway, this is a very good episode about love and support systems and kindness and mentorship. But more importantly, you think about all of these things, especially when you understand how fragile life is and how, as uh, Jonathan would say, is that sometimes I have to be shocked to be put back going again, that without that shock to my heart, I could be out of here at any moment. And I want my life to have meaning. I want to have a good time. I want to enjoy things. And I don't want to just get caught up in the rat race of chasing money. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.